0: Chapter 27 of Capital, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Capital A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume 1 by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part 8 the so-called primitive accumulation chapter 27 expropriation of the agricultural population from the land in england serfdom had practically disappeared in the last part of the 14th century the immense majority of the population consisted then and to a still larger extent in the 15th century of free peasant proprietors whatever was the feudal title under which their right of property was hidden footnote quote the petty proprietors who cultivated their own fields with their own hands and enjoyed a modest competence, then formed a much more important part of the nation than at present. If we may trust the best statistical writers of that age, not less than 160,000 proprietors who, with their families, must have made up more than a seventh of the whole population, derived their subsistence from little freehold estates. The average income of these small landlords, was estimated at between sixty and seventy pounds a year. It was computed that the number of persons who tilled their own land was greater than the number of those who farmed the land of others. End quote. Macaulay, History of England, 10th edition, 1854, volume 1, pages 333 and 334. Even in the last third of the seventeenth century, four-fifths of the English people were agricultural loco citato page 413 i quote macaulay because as systematic falsifier of history he minimizes as much as possible facts of this kind footnote in the larger seigneurial domains the old bailiff himself a serf was displaced by the free farmer the wage laborers of agriculture consisted partly of peasants who utilized their leisure time by working on the larger estates partly of an independent special class of wage labourers relatively and absolutely few in numbers the latter also were practically at the same time peasant farmers since besides their wages they had allotted to them arable land to the extent of four or more acres together with their cottages besides they with the rest of the peasants enjoyed the usufruct of, of the common land which gave pasture to their cattle furnished them with timber firewood turf etc footnote We must never forget that even the serf was not only the owner, if but a tribute paying owner, of the piece of land attached to his house, but also a co possessor of the common land. Le peasant, in Silesia under Frederick II, est serf. Nevertheless, these serfs possess common lands. On n'a pas pu encore engager les Siliens au partage des communes tandis que dans la nouvelle marche il n'y a guère de village où ce partage ne soit executé avec le plus grand succès mirabeau de la monarchie prussienne londres seventeen hundred and eighty eight volume two page one hundred and twenty five and one hundred and twenty six and footnote in all countries of europe feudal production is characterized by division of the soil amongst the greatest possible number of subfeudatories the might of the feudal lord, like that of the sovereign, depended not on the length of his rent-roll, but on the number of his subjects, and the latter depended on the number of peasant proprietors. Footnote. Japan, with its purely feudal organization of landed property and its developed petite culture, gives a much truer picture of the European Middle Ages than all our history books, dictated as these are, for the most part, by bourgeois prejudices. It is very convenient to be liberal at the expense of the Middle Ages. Footnote. Although, therefore, the English land, after the Norman conquest, was distributed in gigantic baronies, one of which often included some nine hundred of the old Anglo-Saxon lordships, it was bestrewn with small peasant properties, only here and there interspersed with great seigneurial domains. Such conditions, together with the prosperity of the towns so characteristic of the fifteenth century, allowed of that wealth of the people which Chancellor Fortescue so eloquently paints in his Laudus legum angliae but it excluded the possibility of capitalistic wealth the prelude of the revolution that laid the foundation of the capitalist mode of production was played in the last third of the fifteenth and the first decade of the sixteenth century a mass of free proletarians was hurled on the labour market by the breaking up of the bands of feudal retainers who as sir john stuart well says everywhere uselessly filled house and castle although the royal power itself a product of bourgeois development in its strife after absolute sovereignty forcibly hastened on the dissolution of these bands of retainers it was by no means the sole cause of it in insolent conflict with king and parliament the great feudal lords created an incomparably larger proletariat by the forcible driving of the peasantry from the land to which the latter had the same feudal right as the lord himself and by the usurpation of the common lands the rapid rise of the flemish wool manufactures and the corresponding rise in the price of wool in england gave the direct impulse to these evictions the old nobility had been devoured by the great feudal wars the new nobility was the child of its time for which money was the power of all powers transformation of arable land into sheep-walks was therefore its cry harrison in his description of england prefixed to holmshed's chronicles describes how the expropriation of small peasants is ruining the country. Quote, what care are great encroachers? The dwellings of the peasants and the cottages of the labourers were raised to the ground or doomed to decay. If, says Harrison, quote, the old records of every manor be sought, it will soon appear that in some manner seventeen, eighteen or twenty houses are shrunk, that England was never less furnished with people than at the present. Of cities and towns either utterly decayed, or more than a quarter, or half diminished, though some one be a little increased here or there, of towns pulled down for sheep-walks, and no more but the lordships now standing in them, I could say somewhat. The complaints of these old chroniclers are always exaggerated, but they reflect faithfully the impression made on contemporaries by the revolution in the conditions of production, a comparison of the writings of Chancellor Fortescue and Thomas More reveals the gulf between the 15th and the 16th century. As Thornton rightly has it, the English working class was precipitated without any transition from its golden into its iron age. Legislation was terrified at this revolution. It did not yet stand on that height of civilization where the quote, wealth of the nation. End quote, that is, the formation of capital and the reckless exploitation and impoverishing of the mass of the people, figure as the ultimate Tulle of all statecraft. In his history of Henry VII, Bacon says, quote, "Enclosures at that time, 1489, began to be more frequent, whereby arable land, which could not be manured without people and families, was turned into pasture, which was easily rid by a few herdsmen, and tenancies for years, lives, and at will, whereupon much of the yeomanry lived were turned into domains this bred a decay of people and by consequence a decay of towns churches tithes and the like in remedying of this inconvenience the king's wisdom was admirable and the parliaments at that time they took a cause to take away depopulating enclosures and depopulating pasturage an act of henry the seventh fourteen hundred and eighty nine chapter nineteen forbade the destruction of all Houses of husbandry, to which at least twenty acres of land belonged. By an act, 25 Henry VIII, the same law was renewed. It recites, among other things, that many farms and large flocks of cattle, especially of sheep, are concentrated in the hands of a few men, whereby the rent of land has much risen and tillage has fallen off. Churches and houses have been pulled down, and marvellous numbers of people have been deprived of the means wherewith to maintain themselves and their families. The Act, therefore, ordains the rebuilding of the decayed farmsteads and fixes a proportion between cornland and pastureland, etc. An Act of 1533 recites that some owners possessed 24,000 sheep and limits the number to be owned to 2,000. Footnote. In his Utopia, Thomas More says that in England, Your sheep that were wont to be so meek and tame and so small eaters now, as I here say, we become so great devourers and so wild that they eat up and swallow down the very man themselves. End quote. Utopia, translated by Robinson, Edition Arbour, London, eighteen sixty nine, page forty one, and footnote. The cry of the people and the legislation directed for one hundred and fifty years after Henry VII against the expropriation of the small farmers and peasants were alike fruitless the secret of their inefficiency, Bacon, without knowing it, reveals to us. Quote, the device of King Henry Seventh, says Bacon, in his Essays Civil and Moral, Essay Twenty Nine, was profound and admirable in making farms and houses of husbandry of a standard, that is, maintained with such a proportion of land unto them as may breed a subject to live in convenient plenty and no servile condition, and to keep the plough in the hands of the owners and not mere hirelings. End quote. Footnote. BACON SHOWS THE CONNECTION BETWEEN A FREE, WELL-TO-DO PEASANTRY AND GOOD INFANTRY. Quote, this did wonderfully concern the might and mannerhood of the kingdom to have farms, as it were, of a standard sufficient to maintain an able body out of penury, and did in effect amortize a great part of the lands of the kingdom unto the hold and occupation of the yeomanry, or middle people, of a condition between gentlemen and cottagers and peasants, for it hath been held, by the general opinion of men of best judgment in the wars, that the principal strength of an army consisteth in the infantry or foot, and to make good infantry it requireth men bred, not in a servile or indigent fashion, but in some free and plentiful manner. Therefore, if a state run most to noblemen and gentlemen, and that the husbandmen and ploughmen be but as their workfolk and labourers, or else mere cottages, which are but housed beggars, you may have a good cavalry but never good stable bands of foot. And this is to be seen in France and Italy and some other parts abroad, where in effect all is noblesse or peasantry, insomuch that they are enforced to employ mercenary bands of Switzers and the like for their battalions of foot, whereby also it comes to pass that those nations have much people and few soldiers. Quote. The reign of Henry the VII. Verbatim reprint from Kennett's England. Edition 1719 london eighteen seventy page three hundred and eight and footnote what the capitalist system demanded was on the other hand a degraded and almost servile condition of the mass of the people the transformation of them into mercenaries and of their means of labour into capital during this transformation period legislation also strove to retain the four acres of land by the cottage of the agricultural wage labourer and forbade him to take lodgers into his cottage In the reign of James I, 1627, Roger Crocker of Front Mill was condemned for having built a cottage on the manor of Front Mill without four acres of land attached to the same in perpetuity. As late as Charles I's reign, 1638, a royal commission was appointed to enforce the carrying out of the old laws, especially that referring to the four acres of land. Even in Cromwell's time, the building of a house within four miles of London was forbidden unless it was endowed with four acres of land. As late as the first half of the eighteenth century, complaint is made if the cottage of the agricultural labourer has not an adjunct of one or two acres of land. Nowadays he is lucky if it is furnished with a little garden, or if he may rent, far away from his cottage, a few roods. Landlords and farmers, says Dr. Hunter, quote, work here hand in hand. A few acres to the cottage would make the laborers too independent. End quote. footnote. Dr. Hunter, Locus etato, page one hundred thirty four. Quote. The quantity of land assigned in the old laws would now be judged too great for laborers, and rather as likely to convert them into small farmers. End quote. George Roberts, The Social History of the People of the Southern Counties of England in Past Centuries, London, eighteen fifty six. Pages 184 and 185 and footnote. The process of forcible expropriation of the people received in the sixteenth century a new and frightful impulse from the Reformation and from the consequent colossal spoliation of the church property. The Catholic Church was, at the time of the Reformation, feudal proprietor of a great part of the English land. The suppression of the monasteries, etc., hurled their inmates into the proletariat, the estates of the church were to a large extent given away to rapacious royal favourites, or sold at a nominal price to speculating farmers and citizens, who drove out, en masse, the hereditary subtenants and threw their holdings into one. The legally guaranteed property of the poorer folk in a part of the church's tithes was tacitly confiscated. Footnote. Quote, the right of the poor to share in the tithe is established by the tenor of ancient statutes. End quote. Tucket, Locus Hateto, Volume 2, Pages 804 and 805. and footnote. Pauper ubiquit jacet, cried Queen Elizabeth, after a journey through England. In the 43rd year of her reign, the nation was obliged to recognize pauperism officially by the introduction of a poor raid. Quote, the authors of this law seem to have been ashamed to state the grounds of it, for... Contrary to traditional usage, it has no preamble whatever. End quote. Footnote: William Cobbett, A History of the Protestant Reformation, Paragraph Four Hundred and Seventy One. and Footnote. By the sixteenth of Charles I, Chapter Four, it was declared perpetual, and in fact only in eighteen thirty four did it take a new and harsher form. Footnote: The spirit of Protestantism may be seen from the following among other things in the south of england certain landed proprietors and well-to-do farmers put their heads together and propounded ten questions as to the right interpretation of the poor law of elizabeth these they laid before a celebrated jurist of that time sergeant snigger later a judge under james i for his opinion Quote, question nine some of the more wealthy farmers in the parish have devised a skilful mode by which all the trouble of executing this act the forty-third of elizabeth might be avoided they have proposed that we shall erect a prison in the parish and then give notice to the neighbourhood that if any persons are disposed to farm the poor of this parish they do give in sealed proposals on a certain day of the lowest price at which you will take them off our hands and that they will be authorised to refuse to any one unless he be shut up in the aforesaid prison the proposers of this plan conceive that there will be found in the adjoining counties persons who being unwilling to labor and not possessing substance or credit to take a farm or ship so as to live without labor may be induced to make a very advantageous offer to the parish if any of the poor perish and the contractors care the sin will lie at his door as the parish will have done its duty by them we are however apprehensive that the present act forty-third of elizabeth will not warrant a prudential measure of this kind But you are to learn that the rest of the freeholders of the county, and of the adjoining county of B, will very readily join in instructing their members to propose an act to enable the parish to contract with a person to lock up and work the poor, and to declare that if any person shall refuse to be so locked up and worked, he shall be entitled to no relief. This, it is hoped, will prevent persons in distress from wanting relief, and be the means of keeping down parishes. Our R. Blakey. THE HISTORY OF POLITICAL LITERATURE FROM THE EARLIEST TIMES, LONDON, 1855, VOLUME 2, PAGES 84 AND 85. In Scotland, the abolition of serfdom took place some centuries later than in England. Even in 1698, Fletcher of Saltoon declared in the Scotch Parliament, The number of beggars in Scotland is reckoned at not less than 200,000. The only remedy that I, a Republican on principle, can suggest, is to restore the old state of serfdom, to make slaves of all those who are unable to provide for their own subsistence. End quote. Eden, loco citato, Book 1, chapter 1, page 60 to 61, says, The decrease of villainage seems necessarily to have been the era of the origin of the poor. Manufacturers and commerce are the two parents of our national poor. End quote. Eden, like our Scotch Republican on principle, errs only in this not the abolition of villainage, but the abolition of the property of the agricultural labourer in the soil made him a proletarian and eventually a pauper in france where the expropriation was effected in another way the ordinance of moulin fifteen seventy one and the edict of sixteen fifty six correspond to the english poor laws and footnote these immediate results of the reformation were not its most lasting ones the property of the church formed the religious bulwark of the traditional conditions of landed property. With its fall, these were no longer tenable. Footnote. Professor Rogers, although formerly a professor of political economy in the University of Oxford, the hotbed of Protestant orthodoxy, in his preface to the history of agriculture, lays stress on the fact of the pauperization of the mass of the people by the Reformation. End footnote even in the last decade of the seventeenth century the yeomanry the class of independent peasants were more numerous than the class of farmers they had formed the backbone of cromwell's strength and even according to the confession of macaulay stood in favourable contrast to the drunken squires and to their servants the country clergy who had to marry their masters cast off mistresses about seventeen fifty the yeomanry had disappeared and so had in the last decade of the eighteenth century the last trace of the common land of the agricultural labourer. Footnote. A letter to Sir T. C. Bunbury, Baronet, on the high price of provisions, by a Suffolk gentleman, Ipswich, 1795, page 4. Even the fanatical advocate of the system of large farms, the author of the inquiry into the connection between the present price of provisions, London, 1773, page 139, says, quote, I most lament the loss of our yeomanry, that set of men who really kept up the independence of this nation, and sorry I am to see their lands now in the hands of monopolizing lords tenanted out to small farmers who hold their leases on such conditions as to be little better than vassals ready to attend the summons on every mischievous occasion. End footnote. We leave on one side here the purely economic causes of the agricultural revolution, We deal only with the forcible means employed. After the restoration of the Stuarts, the landed proprietors carried, by legal means, an act of usurpation, effected everywhere on the continent without any legal formality. They abolished the feudal tenure of land, that is, they got rid of all its obligations to the State, indemnified the State by taxes on the peasantry and the rest of the mass of the people, vindicated for themselves the rights of modern private property in estates to which they had only a feudal title and finally passed those laws of settlement which mutatis mutandis had the same effect on the english agricultural labourer as the edict of the tartar boris Godinov on the russian peasantry the so-called glorious revolution brought into power along with william of orange the landlord and capitalist appropriators of surplus value Footnote. On the private moral character of this bourgeois hero, among other things, quote, the large grant of lands in Ireland to Lady Orkney in 1695 is a public instance of the king's affection and the lady's influence. Lady Orkney's endearing offices are supposed to have been Fide lebiorum Ministeria. In the Sloan Manuscript Collection at the British Museum, number 4224, the manuscript is entitled the character and behaviour of king william sunderland etc as represented in original letters to the duke of shrewsbury from somers halifax oxford secretary vernon etc it is full of curiosa End footnote. they inaugurated the new era by practising on a colossal scale thefts of state lands thefts that had been hitherto managed more modestly these estates were given away sold at a ridiculous figure Or even annexed to private estates by direct seizure. Footnote The illegal alienation of the Crown estates, partly by sale and partly by gift, is a scandalous chapter in English history, a gigantic fraud on the nation. F. W. Newman, Lectures on Political Economy, London, 1851, pages 129 and 130 for details as to how the present large landed proprietors of england came into their possessions see our old nobility by noblesse oblige london eighteen seventy nine f e all this happened without the slightest observation of legal etiquette the crown lands thus fraudulently appropriated together with the robbery of the church estates as far as these had not been lost again during the republican revolution form the basis of the to-day princely domains of the english oligarchy footnote read for example e Burke's pamphlet on the ducal house of bedford whose offshoot was lord john russell the so-called Tomtit of liberalism End footnote the bourgeois capitalists favoured the operation with the view among others to promoting free trade in land to extending the domain of modern agriculture on the large farm system and to increasing their supply of the free agricultural proletarians ready to hand. Besides, the new-landed aristocracy was the natural ally of the new bankocracy, of the newly-hatched haute finance, and of the large manufacturers, then depending on protective duties. The English bourgeoisie acted for its own interest quite as wisely as did the Swedish bourgeoisie, who, reversing the process, hand in hand with their economic allies, the peasantry, helped the kings in the forcible resumption of the crown lands from the oligarchy. This happened since 1604 under Charles X and Charles XI. Communal property, always distinct from the state property just dealt with, was an old Teutonic institution which lived on under cover of feudalism. We have seen how the forcible usurpation of this, generally accompanied by the turning of arable into pasture land, begins at the end of the 15th and extends into the 16th century but at that time the process was carried on by means of individual acts of violence against which legislation for a hundred and fifty years fought in vain the advance made by the eighteenth century shows itself in this that the law itself becomes now the instrument of the theft of the people's land although the large farmers make use of their little independent methods as well the farmers forbid cottagers to keep any living creatures besides themselves and children, under the pretense that if they keep any beasts or poultry, they will steal from the farmers' barns for their support. They also say, keep the cottagers poor and you will keep them industrious, etc. But the real fact, I believe, is that the farmers may have the whole right of common to themselves. A political inquiry into the consequences of enclosing wastelands london seventeen hundred and eighty five page seventy five and footnote the parliamentary form of the robbery is that of acts for enclosures of commons in other words decrees by which the landlords grant themselves the people's land as private property decrees of expropriation of the people Sir F. M. Eden refutes his own crafty special pleading in which he tries to represent communal property as the private property of the great landlords who have taken the place of the feudal lords, when he himself demands a general act of parliament for the enclosure of commons, admitting thereby that a parliamentary coup d'etat is necessary for its transformation into private property, and moreover calls on the legislator for the indemnification of the expropriated poor footnote Eden locus eteto, preface and footnote whilst the place of the independent yeoman was taken by tenants at will small farmers on yearly leases a servile rabble dependent on the pleasure of the landlords the systematic robbery of the communal lands helped especially next to the theft of the state domains to swell those large farms that were called in the 18th century capital farms or merchant farms and to, so to speak, set free the agricultural population as proletarians for manufacturing industry. Footnotes. Capital Farms. Two letters on the flour trade and the dearness of corn by a person in business, London, 1767, page nineteen and twenty. Merchant Farms, an inquiry into the causes of the present high price of provisions, London, 1767, page eleven note this excellent work that was published anonymously is by the reverend nathaniel forster and footnotes the 18th century however did not yet recognize as fully as the 19th the identity between national wealth and the poverty of the people hence the most vigorous polemic in the economic literature of that time on the enclosure of commons from the mass of materials that lie before me i give a few extracts that will throw a strong light on the circumstances of the time Quote, In several parishes of Hertfordshire, writes one indignant person, twenty-four farms, numbering on the average fifty to one hundred and fifty acres, have been melted up into three farms. End quote. Footnote: Thomas Wright, A Short Address to the Public on the Monopoly of Large Farms, seventeen seventy-nine, page two and three. End footnote: quote, In Northamptonshire and Leicestershire the enclosure of common lands has taken place on a very large scale and most of the new lordships resulting from the enclosure have been turned into pasturage in consequence of which many lordships have not now fifty acres ploughed yearly in which fifteen hundred were ploughed formerly the ruins of former dwelling-houses barns stables etc are the sole traces of the former inhabitants a hundred houses and families have in some open field villages dwindled to eight or ten The landholders in most parishes that have been enclosed only fifteen or twenty years are very few in comparison of the numbers who occupied them in their open field state. It is no uncommon thing for four or five wealthy graziers to engross a large enclosed lordship which was before in the hands of twenty or thirty farmers, and as many smaller tenants and proprietors. All these are hereby thrown out of their livings with their families and many other families who were chiefly employed and supported by them End quote. Footnote. Reverend Eddington Inquiry into the reasons for or against enclosing open fields London seventeen seventy two page thirty seven forty three Passim and Footnote. It was not only the land that lay waste, but often land cultivated either in common or held under a definite rent paid to the community, that was annexed by the neighbouring landlords under pretext of enclosure. I have here in view enclosures of open fields and lands already improved. It is acknowledged by even the writers in defence of enclosures that these diminished villages increased the monopolies of farms, raised the prices of provisions, and produced depopulation and even the enclosure of wastelands, as now carried on, bears hard on the poor by depriving them of a part of their subsistence, and only goes towards increasing farms already too large. Footnote. Dr. R. Price, Logo Volume 2, page 155, Forster, Eddington, Kent, Price, and James Anderson should be read and compared with the miserable prattle of sycophant McCulloch in his catalogue the literature of political economy london eighteen forty five and footnote when says dr price quote this land gets into the hands of a few great farmers the consequence must be that the little farmers earlier designated by him a multitude of little proprietors and tenants who maintain themselves and families by the produce of the ground they occupy by sheep kept on a common by poultry hogs etc and who therefore have little occasion to purchase any of the means of subsistence will be converted into a body of men who earn their subsistence by working for others, and who will be under a necessity of going to market for all they want. There will perhaps be more labour because there will be more compulsion to it. Towns and manufactures will increase, because more will be driven to them in quest of places and employment. This is the way in which the engrossing of farms naturally operates, and this is the way in which, for many years, it has been actually operating in this kingdom. Footnote. Price, Lococeteto, page 147. End footnote. He sums up the effect of the enclosures thus: quote, Upon the whole, the circumstances of the lower ranks of men are altered in almost every respect for the worse. From little occupiers of land, they are reduced to the state of day labourers and hirelings, and at the same time their subsistence in that state has become more difficult. End quote. Footnote price lo page one hundred fifty nine we are reminded of ancient rome the rich had got possession of the greater part of the undivided land they trusted in the conditions of the time that these possessions would not be again taken from them and bought therefore some of the pieces of land lying near theirs and belonging to the poor with the acquiescence of their owners and took some by force so that they now were cultivating widely extended domains instead of isolated fields Then they employed slaves in agricultural and cattle breeding, because free men would have been taken from labor for military service. The possession of slaves brought them great gain, inasmuch as these, on account of their immunity from military service, could freely multiply and have a multitude of children. Thus the powerful men drew all wealth to themselves, and all the land swarmed with slaves. The Italians, on the other hand, were always decreasing in number destroyed as they were by poverty, taxes, and military service. Even when times of peace came, they were doomed to complete inactivity, because the rich were in possession of the soil, and used slaves instead of freemen in the tilling of it. End quote. Appian, Civil Wars. 1, 7. This passage refers to the time before the Licinian rogations. Military service, which hastened to so great an extent the ruin of the Roman plebeians, was also the chief means by which as in a forcing-house charlemagne brought about the transformation of free german peasants into serfs and bondsmen in fact usurpation of the common lands and the revolution in agriculture accompanying this told so acutely on the agricultural labourers that even according to eden between seventeen sixty five and seventeen eighty their wages began to fall below the minimum and to be supplemented by official poor-law relief. Their wages, he says, were not more than enough for the absolute necessaries of life. Let us hear for a moment a defender of enclosures, and an opponent of Dr. Price. Not is it a consequence that there must be depopulation, because men are not seen wasting their labour in the open field. If, by converting the little farmers into a body of men who must work for others, more labour is produced, it is an advantage which the nation, to which of course the converted ones do not belong, should wish for. The produce being greater when their joint labours are employed on one farm, there will be a surplus for manufacturers, and by this means manufacturers, one of the minds of the nation, will increase, in proportion to the quantity of corn produced. End quote. Footnote. An inquiry into the connection between the present price of provisions, etc page one hundred and twenty four and one hundred and twenty nine to the like effect, but with an opposite tendency quote, Working men are driven from their cottages and forced into the towns to seek for employment, but then a larger surplus is obtained, and thus capital is augmented End quote. The Perils of the Nation Second Edition London eighteen forty three, page fourteen and footnote. The stoical peace of mind with which the political economist regards the most shameless violation of the sacred rights of property, and the grossest acts of violence to persons, as soon as they are necessary to lay the foundations of the capitalistic mode of production, is shown by Sir F. M. Eden, philanthropist and Tory to boot, The whole series of thefts, outrages, and popular misery that accompanied the forcible expropriation of the people from the last third of the fifteenth to the end of the eighteenth century lead him merely to the comfortable conclusion, The due proportion between arable land and pasture had to be established. During the whole of the fourteenth and the greater part of the fifteenth century there was one acre of pasture to two, three, or even four of arable land. The proportion was changed of two acres of pasture to two, later on, of two acres of pasture to one of arable, until at last the just proportion of three acres of pasture to one of arable land was attained. End quote. In the nineteenth century, the very memory of the connection between the agricultural laborer and the communal property had, of course, vanished. To say nothing of more recent times, have the agricultural population received a farthing of compensation? for the 3,511,770 acres of common land which between 1801 and 1831 were stolen from them and by parliamentary devices presented to the landlords by the landlords. The last process of wholesale expropriation of the agricultural population from the soil is, finally, the so-called clearing of estates, that is, the sweeping men off them. All the English methods hitherto considered culminated in clearing, as we saw in the picture of modern conditions given in a former chapter, where there are no more independent peasants to get rid of, the clearing of cottages begins, so that the agricultural labourers do not find on the soil cultivated by them even the spot necessary for their own housing. But what clearing of estates really and properly signifies, we learn only in the promised land of modern romance, the highlands of Scotland." there the process is distinguished by its systematic character by the magnitude of the scale on which it is carried out at one blow in ireland landlords have gone to the length of sweeping away several villages at once in scotland areas as large as german principalities are dealt with finally by the peculiar form of property under which the embezzled lands were held the highland celts were organized in clans each of which was the owner of the land on which it was settled The representative of the clan, its chief or great man, was only the titular owner of this property, just as the Queen of England is the titular owner of all the national soil. When the English government succeeded in suppressing the intestine wars of these great men and their constant incursions into the lowland plains, the chiefs of the clans by no means gave up their time-honoured trade as robbers. They only changed its form. On their own authority they transformed their nominal right into a right of private property, and as this brought them into collision with our clansmen, resolved to drive them out by open force. Quote, A king of England might as well claim to drive his subjects into the sea, End quote, says Professor Newman. Footnote. Citeto, page 132. End footnote. This revolution, which began in Scotland after the last rising of the followers of the Pretender, can be followed through its first phases in the writings of Sir James Stuart, and james anderson footnotes stewart says quote, "if you compare the rent of these lands he erroneously includes in this economic category the tribute of the taskman to the clan chief with the extent it appears very small if you compare it with the numbers fed upon the farm you will find that an estate in the highlands maintains perhaps 10 times as many people as another of the same value in a good and fertile province End quote. Locusitato Volume one, chapter sixteen, page one hundred and four. James Anderson Observations on the Means of Exciting a Spirit of National Industry, etc. Edinburgh, 1777. End Footnote. In the eighteenth century, the hunted out gales were forbidden to emigrate from the country, with a view to driving them by force to Glasgow and other manufacturing towns. Footnote. In 1860, the people expropriated by force were exported to Canada under false pretenses. Some fled to the mountains and neighbouring islands. They were followed by the police, came to blows with them, and escaped. And footnote. As an example of the method obtaining in the 19th century, the clearing made by the Duchess of Sutherland will suffice here. Footnote. In the highlands of Scotland, says Buchanan, the commentator on Adam Smith, 1814, quote, The ancient state of property is daily subverted. The landlord, without regard to the hereditary tenant, a category used in error here, now offers his land to the highest bidder, who, if he is an improver, instantly adopts a new system of cultivation. The land, formerly overspread with small tenants or labourers, was peopled in proportion to its produce. But under the new system of improved cultivation and increased rents, the largest possible produce is obtained at the least possible expense and the useless hands being, with this view, removed, the population is reduced, not to what the land will maintain, but to what it will employ. The dispossessed tenants either seek a subsistence in the neighbouring towns, end quote, etc. David Buchanan, Observations on, etc., A. Smith's Wealth of Nations, Edinburgh, 1814, volume 4, page 144, quote, the scotch grandees dispossessed families as they would grub up coppice-wood and they treated villages and their people as indians harassed with wild beasts do in their vengeance a jungle with tigers man is bartered for a fleece or a carcass of mutton nay held cheaper why how much worse is it than the intention of the moguls who when they had broken into the northern provinces of china proposed in council to exterminate the inhabitants and convert the land into pasture this proposal, many Highland proprietors have effected in their own country against their own countrymen. End quote. George Anser, An Inquiry Concerning the Population of Nations, London, eighteen eighteen, page two hundred fifteen and two hundred sixteen. This person, well instructed in economy, resolved on entering upon her government to effect a radical cure and to turn the whole country, whose population had already been, by earlier processes of the like kind, reduced to 15,000, into a sheep-walk. From 1814 to 1820, these 15,000 inhabitants, about 3,000 families, were systematically hunted and rooted out. All their villages were destroyed and burned, all their fields turned into pasturage. British soldiers enforced this eviction, and came to blows with the inhabitants. One old woman was burned to death in the flames of the hut, which she refused to leave. Thus this fine lady appropriated 794,000 acres of the land that had from time immemorial belonged to the clan. She assigned to the expelled inhabitants about 6,000 acres on the seashore, two acres per family. The 6,000 acres had until this time lain waste, and brought in no income to their owners the duchess in the nobility of her heart actually went so far as to let these at an average rent of 2 shillings sixpence per acre to the clansmen who for centuries had shed their blood for her family the whole of the stolen clan land she divided into 29 great sheep farms each inhabited by a single family for the most part imported english farm servants in the year 1835 the 15000 gales were already replaced by one hundred and thirty-one thousand sheep. The remnant of the Aborigines, flung on the seashore, tried to live by catching fish. They became amphibious and lived, as an English author says, half on land and half on water, withal only half on both. Footnote When the present Duchess of Sutherland entertained Mrs. Beecher Stowe, authoress of Uncle Tom's Cabin, with great magnificence in London to show her sympathy for the Negro slaves of the American Republic the sympathy that she prudently forgot with her fellow aristocrats during the Civil War, in which every noble English heart beat for the slave-owner, I gave in the New York Tribune the facts about the Sutherland slaves, epitomized in part by Carey in The Slave Trade, Philadelphia, 1853, pages 203 and 204. My article was reprinted in a Scotch newspaper, and led to a pretty polemic between the latter and the sick fence of the Sutherlands. and footnote. But the brave Gales must expiate yet more bitterly their idolatry, romantic and of the mountains, for the great man of the clan. The smell of their fish rose to the noses of the great man. They scented some profit in it, and led the seashore to the great fishmongers of London. For the second time the Gales were hunted out. Footnote interesting details on this fish trade will be found in mr david urquhart's portfolio new series nassau w senior in his posthumous work already quoted terms the proceedings in sutherlandshire one of the most beneficent clearings since the memory of man locus footnote. but finally part of the sheep walks are turned into deer preserves everyone knows that there are no real forests in england the deer in the parks of the Great are demurely domestic cattle, fat as London aldermen. Scotland is therefore the last refuge of the noble passion. In the Highlands, says Somers in 1848, quote, New forests are springing up like mushrooms. Here, on one side of Gake, you have the new forests of Glenfischie. There, on the other, you have the new forest of Artverkie. In the same line you have the Black Mount, an immense waste also recently erected. From east to west... From the neighbourhood of aberdeen through the cracks of oban you have now a continuous line of forests while in other parts of the highlands there are the new forests of loch archaic glengarry glen etc sheep were introduced into glens which had been the seats of communities of small farmers and the latter were driven to seek subsistence on coarser and more sterile tracts of soil now deer are supplanting sheep and these are once more dispossessing the small tenants who will necessarily be driven down upon still coarser land and to more grinding penury. Deer forests and the people cannot coexist. Footnote. The deer forests of London contain not a single tree. The sheep are driven from, and then the deer driven to the naked hills, and then it is called deer forest, not even timber planting and real forest culture. And footnote one or other of the two must yield let the forests be increased in number and extent during the next quarter of a century as they have been in the last and the gales will perish from their native soil this movement among the highland proprietors is with some a matter of ambition with some love of sport while others of a more practical cast follow the trade in deer with an eye solely to profit for it is a fact that a mountain range laid out in forest is in many cases more profitable to the proprietor than when let as a sheep-walk the huntsman who wants a deer forest limits his offers by no other calculation than the extent of his purse sufferings have been inflicted in the highlands scarcely less severe than those occasioned by the policy of the norman kings deer have received extended ranges while men have been hunted within a narrower and still narrower circle one after one, the liberties of the people have been cloven down, and the oppressions are daily on the increase. The clearance and dispersion of the people is pursued by the proprietors as a settled principle, as an agricultural necessity, just as trees and brushwood are cleared from the wastes of America or Australia, and the operation goes on in a quiet, business-like way, etc. End quote. Footnote: Robert Somers. Letters from the Highlands, or the Famine of 1847, London, 1848, pages 12 to 28, passim. These letters originally appeared in the Times. The English economists, of course, explained the famine of the Gales in 1847 by their overpopulation. At all events, they were pressing on their food supply. The clearing of estates, or as it is called in Germany, Baunlegen, occurred in Germany especially after the Thirty Years' War, and led to peasant-revolts as late as 1790 in Kursachsen. It obtained especially in East Germany. In most of the Prussian provinces, Frederick II for the first time secured right of property for the peasants. After the conquest of Silesia, he forced the landlords to rebuild the huts, barns, etc., and to provide the peasants with cattle and implements. He wanted soldiers for his army, and taxpayers for his treasury for the rest the pleasant life that the peasant led under frederick's system of finance and hotchpotch rule of despotism bureaucracy and feudalism may be seen from the following quotation from his admirer mirabeau Quote, le lit fait donc une des grandes richesses du cultivateur dans le nord de l'allemagne malheureusement pour l'espèce humaine ce n'est qu'une ressource contre la misère et non un moyen de bien-être les impôts directs les corvées." les servitudes de tout genre écrasent la cultivature allemande qui paie encore des impôts indirects dans tout ce qu'il achète et pour comble de ruines, il n'ose pas vendre ses productions où et comme il veut il n'ose pas acheter ce dont il a besoin au marchand qui pourra le lui livrer au meilleur prix toutes ces causes le ruinant insensiblement et il se trouvera hors d'état de payer les impôts directs à l'échéance sans la fierie elle lui offre une ressource en occupant utilement sa femme ses enfants ses servantes ses valets et lui-même mais quelle pénible vie même aidée de ses secours en été il travaille comme une forçat au laborage et à la récolte il se couche à neuf heures et se lève à deux pour suffire aux travaux en hiver il devrait réparer ses forces par un plus grand repos mais il manquera de graines pour le pain. Et les s'émeuille s'il se défait des denrées qu'il faudrait vendre pour payer les impôts il faut donc filer pour suppléer à ce vide il faut y apporter la plus grande assiduité aussi le paysan se couche-t-il en hiver à minuit une heure et se lève à cinq ou six ou bien il se couche à neuf et se lève à deux et cela tous les jours de la vie si ce n'est le dimanche excess de veille et de travail us la nature humaine et de là vient comme et femmes vieilles beaucoup plus tôt dans les campagnes que dans les villes mirabeau locus volume three pages two hundred and twelve and the following End footnote. the spoliation of the church's property the fraudulent alienation of the state domains the robbery of the common lands the usurpation of feudal and clan property, and its transformation into modern private property under circumstances of reckless terrorism, were just so many idyllic methods of primitive accumulation. They conquered the field for capitalistic agriculture, made the soil part and parcel of capital, and created for the town industries the necessary supply of a so-called free and outlawed proletariat. End of Part 8 CHAPTER twenty seven